This is Kristen Hovitt, and you are listening to Humans of Earth, the podcast that seeks to make the world smaller through shared stories of ourselves and what matters to us. I really wanted to believe I wanted to be a Christian, but I was really into quite a lot of paranormal stuff. Happy New Year. I hope your holidays were amazing. Welcome to the 14th episode of Humans of Earth. Today, I'm speaking with Gunnar Tiamli, a 43-year-old writer, web developer, and podcast host from Oslo, Norway. Hello. Hello. How are you? Hi. I'm fine, thanks. Can you hear me well? Yeah, it's great. How about you? Yeah, I hear you fine. What time is it there? It's in the evening, right? Yeah, it's 7 p.m. Okay. How was your day? It was good. Just been at work. Not being so productive because I've been messing around with changing my private email systems and stuff. So Yeah, always fun, right? Mm. So I read on Wikipedia, you were born on August 3rd, 1974. Yeah, that's correct. And how would you describe your hometown or where you grew up? Well, I was born in Tanzania, actually, in Dar es Salaam in 1974. My parents met and my dad was working as a teacher in Zambia. And my mother, who's from London originally, she had uh, gone to Zambia to do some voluntary work. And they met there, out in the bush. And they had my older brother in 1971. He was born in Zambia. And then they moved to Tanzania, where I was born in 1974. And then I lived a couple of years there, which I, of course, can't remember. Uh, But we moved back to Norway in 1976, and then we moved to a very, very small place in the southern part of Norway where my dad was raised or lived, a place called Tonsta. It's very small. It's probably just about 500 people or something living there. So I lived there until I was, uh, until 1984, when we moved back to Kenya for two years, and my father got a job as the manager of in Kenya for the Norwegian Save the Children. So we lived in Kenya for two years, and then we moved back to Tonsta again. So most of my life I've lived in Tonsta, but I feel kind of almost a little multicultural because I've lived four years in Africa, and my mother is English, so I have quite a lot of impressions from different parts of the world. But Tonsta is a very, very small place, and it's kind of in the Bible Belt of Norway. Oh, so it's very uh, religious and conservative, which kind of was my inspiration, I guess, uh, because I considered myself a Christian when I grew up. I did a lot of work in the church, especially because I was interested in music. And where I come from, you had two choices, really. You had to do sports play football or handball or something or go skiing or you would be active in the church and I wasn't a big sporting person so Mm -hmm. (laughs) I wanted to work with music and the church had all these instruments and all this uh, equipment so I started playing in a band and I was leading a few choirs for children and and young people and and adults uh, for about 10 years so I worked a lot in music and some theater and many cultural things which was great because I mean I am really, really privileged when you think about it, because Norway is year after year rated probably the number one country in the world to live in. Uh, The municipality where I, where Tonsta is called Seerdal Kommune, is 
probably one of the richest municipalities in Norway again. So I feel I've kind of been growing up in the needle point of the world map where we are most privileged in the whole world, probably. So it's a great place. We have a lot of money and a lot of work. In, I mean, we had all opportunities to do whatever we wanted when we were young. It was very, very safe. We could play in the forest, do anything, go anywhere. So it was a great way to grow up. That sounds nice. I have a lot of questions from just what you've said, but first I just want to ask what it was like to live in Kenya. Kind of amazing. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. It was kind of scary when we moved there. I had to go the first year we lived in Kisumu, which is right on the equator by the Lake Victoria. And we went to an African school, which was kind of scary in the beginning because it was like going 50 years back in time. They had physical punishment of the pupils if they didn't behave and mm. things that I wasn't really used to. Part of it was homeschooling to, to learn Norwegian and some subjects that they didn't really have there. But it was amazing. My father, he's a biologist originally, so we went on many safaris driving for days and days and he would teach me about all the birds and I knew most of the birds of East Africa at that time, but I've forgotten all of it now, unfortunately. But it was really great. We had lots of adventures and the people are amazing and I feel really privileged to have lived there. Mm -hmm. And the second year we lived in Nairobi, the, the capital of Kenya, which is about, I think we lived about 2000 meters or something above sea level and a, quite a different climate than Kisumu. And there we went to a Norwegian school, but the Norwegian school was a very religious missionary school, which also kind of affected me, I guess, because I was, I think, the only pupil there. I was 11 years old who believed in evolution. And I tried to t tell the other kids that, you know, evolution is real. And, and they just thought it was the most crazy thing they've, they'd ever heard. Do you ever go back? I've been there only once in 2001. We went on a holiday for a couple of weeks uh, to Mombasa and uh, by the sea and had a short safari. And my parents and my younger brother were there a few years ago, and they are actually going back now. My parents and my older brother are going to Zambia now in in the spring sometime. And my younger brother and his girlfriend and I think even children are going to Tanzania or Kenya, I can't quite remember, in the summer. So they've actually been there a couple of times. I really want to go back, but I have a daughter who is 11 years today, and I've kind of been waiting for her to get old enough to enjoy it, really. And now she is old enough, so now I really don't have any excuse <laughs> except for the money because it's quite expensive. Well, that would be an awesome trip for sure. And going back to what you said about the church and Christianity, how did you end up leaving? It was a long process, I guess. I mean, my parents are... They call themselves Christians, but they are very more like cultural Christians in a way. They don't, I mean, they are not fundamentalists in any way. I've always been taught about science and things from my dad. I was raised in kind of a Christian home and where I lived at school and everything, everything was Christian. You had no choice, really. We went to church all the time. And, and when I played piano for the choirs, I went to church almost every Sunday just to play piano for the people singing there. But it was, a, I guess, when I was in my late teens and nearing 20 years old, I started doubting because of some things that happened which really didn't make sense. But I really wanted to believe. I wanted to be a Christian. So I really tried hard. But I, I think I really doubted all the time, mostly. I just didn't want to accept it. But then after a while, I really started accepting for myself that I don't really believe in a God. 
it's kind of a scary thing because I know rationally that there isn't a God, but when you go through that process, it's kind of scary. You feel like a really, really bad person for denying God. Even if you don't believe in God, that's the it's kind of a paradox. So it took a few years, but then when I became 24, 25, I really started accepting that I wasn't a Christian. And then a few years later, I started my blog. And the first blog posts I wrote were really anti-religion because I really felt the need to stand up against conservative Christians writing in the local newspapers, telling everyone that homosexuality is a sin and abortion is a sin and all those things. And I tried to discuss with them in the local newspaper, trying to use science and, and logic to present my point of view. So my blog was really started because I really needed to distance myself from the conservative religion of the place I was living. What would you call yourself now? I know you're a skeptic and humanist. Would you also say atheist? Yeah, I would say an atheist, but you know, it's that's always a big discussion. I think Penn Gillette of Penn and Teller, he said it quite nice in a video many years ago. He said, there are really two different questions uh, on the question, do you believe in God? I would say I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God, like I don't believe in fairies or Santa Claus. But on the question, does God exist or is there a God? I would be an agnostic because that's the only, in a way, scientific way to look at it. You can't really know. You can't say that it doesn't exist. But that doesn't mean there's a 50-50 chance. That means that there probably isn't a God. But you can't completely say that it isn't zero. But I would, uh, for all practical purposes, I would call myself an atheist because I don't really see any need to differentiate in that way. Here in Canada, when we talk about Scandinavia, we normally see you all as very secular, generally speaking. How common is it basically to be conservative and very Christian in Norway? It's not common at all. And that was a problem when I started blogging about it, because I was blogging about uh, these crazy Christians believing all kinds of uh, weird things. And then people reading my blog in the beginning there weren't many people reading but a few people were reading it and they often came from like around oslo maybe and uh, the eastern part of of norway and they would say that this is wrong what you're writing there aren't christians that really believe this these are straw men you are not really arguing against positions that people really have because they didn't understand that where i live people actually believe that the Earth is 6,000 years old and evolution is a lie. But that was completely uh, fiction for them. So I think many people in Norway don't really understand that there is a real conservative Christian group in parts of Norway, but it isn't widespread, so most people don't really have to deal with it. But you know, here in Norway, we look at the United States as very conservative and, and very religious. Yeah. Maybe more than it really is. But we see these statistics on how many people are religious and how many people believe in uh, creationism and stuff. And the numbers are way higher in, in the United States than they are in Norway. So you're a writer, a podcast host, and a web developer. What does a typical day look like for you? Well, at the moment, I, I don't really blog that much anymore. But when I was most active, I started my blog in 2006, I think. And then I nearly blogged every day or at least two or three blog posts a week. And my blog uh, really grew fast. It took a few years, but when it really caught the attention of people, it became quite big. So in around 2013, 2012, 2013, 14, it was one of the biggest blogs in Norway. 
which is quite weird in a way because most of the big blogs are these uh, fashion interested girls writing about makeup and fashion and things mm -hmm. but then my blog is about science and some politics and some personal stuff but mostly about science and alternative medicine and arguing against vaccine denialists and things so it's quite strange that a weird blog like that could be so popular. We have this Norwegian skeptic organization and the main person, or at least the guy who was the main person behind the skeptic movement in Norway had a blog and there was one other guy. So there were a couple of kind of skeptical blogs before me, but they weren't read, I think, that much. But then my blog came and I kind of put the focus on, on fact checking and going to the sources and looking what the science and research says and kind of made it popular. And I've seen a real shift now because now the, the last couple of years, suddenly we see a lot more of that in the media. Like in, in Norway, they actually started a, a new organization called Faktisk.no, which I guess translates to something like Factually.no, which is an organization who, who fact check things in the media, almost like Snopes. So they are basically doing what I was doing for free and, and, and as a hobby for many years. But now it's kind of exploded. So now... People are much more interested in and they talk a lot more about fact checking and, and you know, checking if things are real. So I, I think I could say I was one of the people who kind of made that mainstream, which um, I think is a bit fun and important. And how big is alternative medicine in Norway? It's not very big. It depends on how you measure it. But it's actually been going down the last few years. I mean, the, the number of people using it, mostly because I think it's a combination of my blog. I've been writing a lot about it. And I also had, um, I was working together with one of the largest Norwegian online newspapers uh, called Netavisen for three years, where they would front or, or, you know, put my blog post on the front page, which gave me lots and lots of readers. So that helped me reach out to a lot of people and many people who otherwise probably wouldn't have read my blog. There's been a Norwegian TV series which has had different topics. One season was about alternative medicine. And I think that also really, really helped because TV is, of course, a lot more powerful than a simple personal blog. And so it's kind of been picking up traction and newspapers have been writing more and more about it. So now I think people are really are finally understanding what homeopathy is, which I guess most people didn't really know before. They just heard it sounded like a natural treatment, which probably is cool. But now hardly anyone, the, the numbers for people using homeopathy in Norway have plummeted, so there's hardly anyone left. When did you write your two books? My first book was published in 2013 called Placebo Defecten, or the Placebo Defect in English. It's about the placebo effect, but it's more about why people feel that treatments that don't really work, work after all. I mean, what statistical phenomena, what psychological effects, all these things that can make you believe that something that really isn't working seems to work. I was asked by the Norwegian Humanist Association, they have a, a publishing company called Humanist Forlag, and they asked me to write this book about alternative medicine. And when I started thinking about it, I was trying to write kind of a a trick or treatment, you know, the Simon Singh, uh, Edsard Ernst book. Uh, isn't it Edsard Ernst? He's, yeah, at least Simon Singh, I can't remember if it's Edsard Ernst or if I'm mixing names. But anyway, they wrote a book where they kind of looked at many different alternative treatments and looked what the science said and kind of mostly debunked most of the treatments. So that was what I thought I was going to write. But then I ended up with a book that was more 
personal and more trying to understand why people believe that these things work, why they feel that these things work. And I only focus on three alternative treatments, which is homeopathy, which I place to the far end of the specter, which is more religion than anything else. And then I had acupuncture, which is kind of in the middle because it's some, I mean, they use it some in hospitals and it's kind of plausible that it could work because you actually do something to people, you, you stick needles in them. And then uh, chiropractic, which most people don't really look uh, on as an alternative treatment at all. So I tried to find these three different treatments and, and go in depth looking at the history of them and what they really are and what the science says. But except for those three uh, chapters, it's mostly about the placebo effect and the ethics of using placebos and stuff. And the other book, it sold really well for Norwegian standards, which is fun. I've also had a lot of lectures about the book all around Norway and actually quite a few medical students in different European countries and things. But then I wrote another book in uh, 2016, which has a title that I won't even dare to translate mm -hmm. to. <laughs> but that's more about the media and how you should be critical to yeah, all these uh, impressions you get that everything is getting worse. There's more crime, there's more everything when actually things are getting better and trying to just teach people how to read statistics correct. But I also write a little bit about vaccines and things in the last book, trying to tell people that when you hear all these newspapers writing about adverse effects from the HPV vaccine, for example, which seems really scary. And then you look into the science and look into the research and try to tell people that it actually isn't like that. It's a very safe and effective vaccine. When you were writing your book about placebos, did you change your mind at all about placebo in the process of research for that? I was quite humbled by what I learned about how powerful these effects are. But at the same time, I also learned a lot about that most of the effects that people call the placebo effect isn't really a placebo effect. It's mostly regression toward the mean and, right. and other statistical effects. So in one way, it can be a really powerful effect, especially on things, subjective experiences like pain and nausea and your kind of energy level or how you feel through the day. But for most things when people try an alternative treatment and they feel better it's usually not mostly the placebo effect it's usually that people just get better after a while most alternative treatment is just keeping people occupied while they are waiting for the body to fix itself were you ever into alternative medicine or did your parents being into the sciences did that protect you from that a little bit yeah, I was never into alternative medicine, but I was really into quite a lot of paranormal stuff when I was younger. I was really fascinated by UFO sightings and out-of-body experiences and all these kind of things. But one thing that really changed me, I think, if I look back, is I was reading, you know, the books of Eric von Däniken and all these weird things. I was really fascinated by that. And I read a lot about the near-death experiences. And then I went to the local library and picked up a couple of books about near-death experiences. And one of those books was Susan Blackmore's book, uh, Dying to Live. And I thought that was a book about near-death experiences, which it was, except that it was trying to explain all these experiences in a scientific way, trying to show what is actually happening in the body when people are seeing the light at the end of the tunnel and, and stuff. And that really kind of gave me an awakening where I saw that the scientific, I mean, answering these questions in a scientific way, trying to really understand what is happening is much more exciting than just having all these questions and mysteries. So that kind of changed me, I think. And then I started borrowing books of uh, James Randi and 
and uh, Carl Sagan and all these nice. popular books. And then later Richard Dawkins, I read mostly all of Richard Dawkins. And so then, then I started reading more science literature, which I basically was the only thing I was reading for about 20 years, quantum mechanics and cosmology and anything, uh, relativity and anything I could get my hands on that was uh, exciting. And I didn't understand half of it, but I just mm-hmm. found it really, really exciting reading it and trying to grasp a little bit of it. Do you read any fiction? I did when I was younger, but the last years I really haven't read a lot of fiction, unfortunately. I don't feel I have the time anymore. I read a lot, but you know, most of the day goes just reading different articles and things online. So I don't really have the patience anymore to just sit down with a book and read it. What's something about you that most people don't know? Hmm, that's a hard question because I'm a very open person, really. I think that's the main reason that my blog was so popular is that there were and there have been others later that have been writing about vaccine denial and alternative medicine. But most people who write about science are kind of invisible in the text. You don't really see the person who is writing. Sometimes it's a bit more academic writing style. Sometimes it's just teaching people the facts and science. I always wanted to show who I was. So in between all these scientific blog posts, I always wrote blog posts that were really, really personal and even private about everything from sexuality, sexual experiences when I was young and uh, exploring sexuality and stuff and what music I like and anything that I was interested in, which I think is kind of important because that gives the blog uh, a more personal feeling and a face. In May, I started this new podcast with a probably one of the best, most well-known Norwegian stand-up comics. I really needed to find another way to express myself because I've been writing the blog for over 10 years and the blog is always very fact-based. I always have sources for everything I, I claim, you know, linking to scientific studies and things. And it kind of made me a bit tired because sometimes I just wanted to to just be a bit more free and just, what do you call it, um, just speculate or, or just think philosophically about questions without having all the sources and maybe having fact-checked everything. So in that podcast, we've been talking about lots of crazy things, but uh, Mm -hmm. I'm also very personal in the podcast. I I use myself a lot and my personal experiences and tell people almost everything. Some people might even find it a bit too much information sometimes, but Mm -hmm. I'm very open and I just think I don't really like keeping any secrets. And I think it's important because I think the the worst thing is people going around feeling shameful for all these thoughts they might have or feelings they might have because many people think that I'm so special and no one else have these dark thoughts and no one else have these feelings that I have. But when you start talking to people, you usually find that most people are quite similar. Most people have had the same thoughts and, <laughs> and feelings. Mm. It's important that someone just goes out and and say it, even though many people will find it a bit too personal, maybe. But I think it's important that that I do that. And that was something I learned through the blog, because I wrote a couple of blog posts early on, which kind of scared me when I was deciding, should I publish this or should I not? But when you actually do it, you usually only get mostly positive feedback, because people say, oh, I'm so glad you wrote this, and oh, I've, I've been thinking the same way, and... And it's kind of nice. So I think it's just important to be open and just tell things like it is. 
But it's also a, a bit of a risk. I mean, mm-hmm. as I said, I started writing a lot about religion in the beginning and topics like immigration and racism and things have also something I've been writing a lot about even from the start. Um, my brain is wired in a way that I really like to explore topics that usually are considered taboo for many people. Anything from necrophilia to animal sex to pedophilia to just try to understand what these things say about the human condition and what defines a person and yeah, what is motivating people to do these things. Because I was really provoked by people and anytime someone was arrested for having sex with a minor or something, it was always we have to castrate them and torture them and kill them and put them in jail for the rest of their lives. And I really wanted to look at the science and say, what's this really about? So I wrote quite a few blog posts about those topics that provoked a lot of people, I guess, because it was kind of, uh, people just don't like to think about it. They don't want to touch the topics at all. They just want to push it away and don't deal with it. But I did the opposite. I tried and I dived into it and really tried to understand it. Mm-hmm. So that gave me a lot of haters and that gave people, of course, some ammunition when the haters started to attack me from the alternative medicine community and anti-vaxxers and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then they were, would pull this old blog post and say, hey, look what he wrote here and you can't trust this person. So that was really, really bad for a few years. And uh, they started blogs, you know, telling people I was a pedophile and of course, I was paid millions and millions from Big Pharma to write my blog and <laughs> all these crazy lies. But it actually turned out for the best because it really put the focus on those topics that really people hadn't talked about before. Suddenly people were forced to take a stance on really hard topics like pedophilia or child porn, which I had written extensively about. And they really couldn't find anything as far as I experienced, there are a few things I wrote which was kind of stupid, I guess, uh, in hindsight, because I probably wanted to provoke a little bit too much in the beginning. But mostly it's it's factual and it's backed by science. And I think even that has had an effect on, on people because um, as late as now this autumn, there was a, a Norwegian TV series who, who had two episodes about pedophilia. And I've really experience that people had changed a lot because a few years ago people would have just reacted with disgust and and hate but now suddenly people were really able to talk about it in in a completely different manner and i believe and i hope that my blog and all the controversies around my blog probably helped making that a more informed discussion what inspires you to do all the things that you do well, that's always a hard question because I don't know. I, I just think I'm wired that way. Mm-hmm. But if I should try to understand myself in a way, I think much of it comes from my father. Uh, as I said, he's a biologist and he's always been interested in science. And he was the kind of person that always would ask questions when I was younger and always would try to make me ask questions. And when I had all these beliefs, I came to him and, and told him about, oh, there's been a, I mean, Ros- the Roswell incident They have proof that this and this happened because I read it on the internet uh, in the early internet of the 90s. And then he would be skeptical and and it wouldn't change my mind immediately. But he always made me ask questions and and be skeptical to the information I found that inspired me or formed me into a person that has always asked questions. And I also think being raised in a quite conservative, very small community where 
most people have to mean and say the same things because no one wants to really stand out from the crowd made me kind of a rebel in that way because I really when I got into my 20s I really wanted to take a stance against that kind of thinking just the reason for starting my blog I remember I was thinking if I get hit by a car tomorrow and die no one will really know what I have been thinking about everyone will just think that I was this boring guy playing piano for the choir in the church mm-hmm. when really I was thinking about uh, all kind of taboo uh, topics and politics and scientific questions I have to tell people what I'm thinking mm-hmm. and that's really what has been driving me now when I started the new podcast also I really have this drive to just explore knowledge and I've also been holding a few lectures about blogging and, and I found this quote and I can't remember who said it but it was, I think it's a a female writer who once said that I write to find out what I know. And that's really what I also believe that most people don't really know what they believe until they sit down and have to write it down on a piece of paper or on a computer. Anyone participating in any kind of discussion should be forced to first sit for an hour and just write their argument down to see if it really is consistent and if they really have the research or the facts to support it. I've experienced that a few times. I have to write a blog post about this because this is crazy or this is wrong. And then I start writing and then I start researching and then I find out that, oops, I was wrong. I've also written a couple of blog posts where I kind of go through all the things that I've been wrong about, trying to show people that I've changed my mind about certain things, because that's also an important part of being a skeptic, of course. My brain is just wired that I want to explore all topics and I just can't accept things that people just take for granted. If people have some kind of belief about some taboo topic that everyone just accepts, I have to check why do people accept this? What does the science actually say? Because usually uh, we know a bit more about these topics than people usually think that we do. And that knowledge might contradict the popular opinion uh, many times. Uh, You had mentioned music a couple times. Is that still a big part of your life? No, unfortunately not. When I started blogging and then I moved to Oslo in 2010, where I live now, I really left that behind me. Of course, I'm interested in music and I have a guitar and I have a piano and I like playing, but... I don't really have the time and it's not so easy here in Oslo. Where I came from in Tonsta, we had all the instruments and I had a place to play and I had friends that I could jam together with. But in Oslo, I really don't have that. So it's not so much music now, but um, sometimes I think I'll try to take it up again, but it hasn't happened so far. And what styles of music do you like? Almost anything, actually. The bands I played in was mostly kind of a pop rock kind of mainstream music. But then I also made quite a lot of music on my computer, which was more like anything from electronica to dance music to jazz to anything. So I, I enjoy most kinds of music. The only things I don't really listen to, which I feel a bit ashamed about and a bit sad about, is really classical music. I would like to know more and listen more to classical music, but I'm a child of the 80s and 90s, so there's a lot of 80s and 90s music uh, I listen to. Tell me about the little things in life that give you the most joy. I feel kind of like a boring person. When people ask me what I do, I go to work and I... (laughs) And I'm a, a big nerd, so I use a lot of time by my computer. So the things that really give me pleasure is uh, 
being with my daughter when she comes here. She lives mostly with her mom, but she comes here to Oslo every second weekend and in holidays. So we spend time together. I enjoy uh, watching good TV series on Netflix and HBO. But most of all, I think I just enjoy a good discussion. I really enjoy arguing with people, <laughs> not in a in a mean way, but just trying to to understand and, and, and learn more. Because most of the things I've learned is by going into discussions with people. And I feel I have to make some kind of point. But to make that point, I have to research. And then I frantically Google and read the research and see, am I right about this? And if I am, I can make a good argument. And if not, I learn something new. And these discussions have often been the source for writing a blog post later because I start discussing something and then I find all these studies and research that is interesting and then I write a blog post to kind of summarize all the things I've learned about this topic. That gives me great joy to just learn new things and try to wrap my brain around things that are really difficult to understand. How do people respond to that tendency? Because I have that too. And I'm wondering, do people accept it more in guys? That's kind of what I am seeing around me, but not sure what you find. The skeptical community in Norway has actually had quite a, a few women who have been vocal and uh, visible in the debates. I'm a guy that I like to hang with women more than I like to hang with men. So most of my friends <laughs> are, are female and they are mostly skeptics and so I've learned a lot from them, and I think they are really vocal and visible on in Facebook in discussions and things. So I don't think that people uh, see it that way. They don't mm. look down on women in any way for being skeptics or being engaging in these discussions. Right, that's good. I think for me, what I've found is that sometimes because when I argue or when I debate, it's not necessarily that I even have a stance yet. I will just take a stance and see what it feels like to argue from that point. Mm. So people sometimes take that the wrong way. Or they're like, well, why are you being so aggressive with your debating? Why can't you just let it slide? And I'm like, well, I can't. <laughs> so that's mm. sort of what I found with some people, not everyone, obviously. What I've learned in life so far is that if something feels really true, then I really have to take a step back and really look harder into it and, and find if it really is true. Because if something gives me, that was something I also learned from writing the book, The Placebo Defect, is that humans mostly are meaning-seeking machines. Uh, everything we do is about trying to find meaning. And that's a really powerful effect. When you think you find meaning in something, it can be hard to change your mind, which you, of course, see a lot in conspiracy theorists and things. And I don't want to go fall into that trap so the latest challenge has really been like the Me Too campaign and, and things, because there are things there that I, as a man, really hadn't thought that much about. And I hadn't had those experiences that women have had. And I feel a lot of men just say that, oh, this is stupid. and Oh, women shouldn't complain or women should uh, be able to tolerate this and that, which can be kind of the gut instinct for many men, because we haven't lived the life that many or most women have. So I really tried to wrestle with my own feelings and try to really see it from another perspective. And sometimes I think, am I really wrong? Am I being too hard on men? <laughs> or, but then uh, I have mostly female friends. Almost every female friend I have has experienced a lot of these things. Many of them have experienced rape and all kinds of things. And I just have to try to take their viewpoint. And, and that's been quite hard. 
and many people are angry at me because they feel I'm I'm being too much of a feminist. <laughs> but I think it's important, and maybe I am going too far. But even though I think that's healthy, in a way, is playing a devil's advocate sometimes, just trying to really take the opposite point of view than my gut instinct sometimes would have told me. Mm-hmm. And try to argue, and then I learn a lot of new things. The other part, if, if I hear someone claiming something and I think, oh, that's stupid, more often than not, except for when it comes to paranormal stuff or alternative medicine, <laughs> when it comes to things that is more about experiences and things, usually when you really take a step back and give yourself some days or weeks or even months to really think about it instead of just saying what you mean immediately, it changes your mind. And you find that, oh, they they were right after all, or at least partly right. Mm-hmm. So I'm really, really scared. That's a big thing in our podcast when we take topics that on the surface might seem really, really stupid. And you really just want to say, oh, these people are idiots and I can't understand why they are saying this. If I get that feeling, I always try to, to just take a step back and think harder about it and see if maybe I'm completely wrong here. What is your most prized possession and why? I don't really get attached to things and I like having quite a few things because I like the freedom. I mean, I don't, I was married a few years ago and then we built a house and we had a car and everything. But then um, we got divorced and I sold, we sold the house and I sold the car and I moved to Oslo and now I don't really own anything big. I don't have any debt and I don't have a house. I'm just renting an apartment here in Oslo. And that kind of freedom just really, I just like that. So my perfect situation would just to have my MacBook and my iPhone and then be free to travel and go anywhere because most of my life is in my iPhone and MacBook. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If I have those and oxygen and water and some food, I'm pretty happy. So my most prized possession, I think, would be my iPhone. I couldn't live without it. Do you travel a lot? Yeah, quite a lot. I've been traveling a lot, holding these public talks or lectures around Norway and a bit in Europe, which is very fun. And in my day job, I work as a web developer and the manager of a small IT company, which I also partly own. And I've been traveling quite a lot, having meetings with customers and things. But then I also try to travel on my free time. I mean, for many years, when I started my company in 1999, for at least 10 years, I was completely trapped in the company. I couldn't go anywhere because I had to be available at all times. But then I hired a few people and things kind of settled down a bit. So the last two years I've been free to travel more. And I really enjoy that. I would like to travel even more. It's expensive and I don't always have the time, but I hope to travel even more when I get older. And what are the top four places you want to visit? Oh, it's not so exciting. I think uh, the top two at least I want to visit is um, I want to go back to Kenya and I really really I've I've been to New York a couple of times and for some reason I just love New York (laughs) Uh, I don't really know why because I was there quite a short time and I didn't get to see much but it's just something about the place that makes me feel free and I also I visited Vegas a couple of times and the last time I was there we took a road trip from Vegas to LA there was also something about LA which just made me feel so free. I just thought that one day I want to live in LA for a, a while. So maybe uh, Kenya, somewhere in Kenya, New York, LA. And I am also very fascinated about Japan. So I would like to go to Tokyo or something because it just feels like the most different place you can be. That would be nice someday. 
Would you consider yourself to be an introvert or extrovert? That's also a hard question. I'm really an introvert. I enjoy just being by myself and I don't enjoy big parties or big crowds of people. But it's kind of strange because I also feel like it has to do a lot with control because I could, at least when I moved to Oslo, after having lived, spent most of my life in this tiny, tiny place called Tonstad where you didn't really have any challenges. Everyone knew everyone. Uh, you could go to the shop and just take whatever you wanted and just tell them, oh, I'll come back and pay sometime later. And it was okay. So it was really relaxed. But then you come to Oslo and then you don't know anyone. And then suddenly everything is more complicated. So when I came here, I found it really hard just to go to a cafe and buy a cup of coffee because how do you pronounce the words? How do I pay? Should I wait here? Should I go there? Should I wait at the table? Should I pay? Uh, I, I just didn't understand anything. And things that most people would find completely non-problematic, I found quite hard. But on the other hand, I have no problem standing on a stage performing music or singing or holding these lectures for lots of people and meeting strangers all around the world. And most people would think that was really hard or scary. So it's kind of turned upside down in a way. The most ordinary things can be hard for me, but things that people usually fear are quite easy. So I'm an introvert, definitely, but I like attention if I'm in control, if you understand. If I'm on the stage holding a, a talk, then I like the attention. But if I get attention that I can't control, if I'm at a party and suddenly I have to talk to strangers and things, then I'm not so comfortable. If you could try any other profession, what would it be? When I grew up, I was completely convinced I was going to be a doctor. I was so interested in medicine and the human body. When we lived in Kenya, I was always packing the briefcase with all the malaria medicines and all the first aid kits. And I would, even when I went to um, elementary school, when I came home from school, I would make myself a sandwich and I would go and grab one of the encyclopedias in the house. And I would read and read and read about the human body, trying to understand everything. And I would always ask my father, what does the kidneys do? How does the blood circulate in the body? Anything about the body, I would ask him and he would explain me. So I really, really enjoyed that. Uh, and when I went to high school, I took chemistry. I paid a, a teacher to teach me chemistry because they didn't have that at the school I went because I needed that to become a doctor or, or go to medicine. But then in 1993, the last year of high school, I applied for universities. But just before that, I had really gotten interested in computers and I've been reading about this internet thing that was coming and the only place you could get access to the internet was if you studied at the university. And if I wanted to study medicine, I had to wait at least a semester before I could get access to the internet. But if I studied computer science, I could get access immediately. <laughs> <laughs> so after having used my whole life, just trying to learn anything about the body and uh, completely convinced I would study medicine, I just switched and I ended up studying computer science. But I just took one year and then I stopped because I really wanted to work with music. So I never completed any formal education. So I'm just self-taught in everything I do, actually. But if I had to choose one thing to work with, it would probably be medicine, I think, or music. You mentioned that you like to watch Netflix and HBO. What are some of your favorite TV shows? Oh, that's really hard because I always forget what I've been watching, but I've been watching most of the popular series and some series that are not that well known. But if I had to say one that just comes to mind recently, it would have to be Black Mirror, I guess. 
which just released its fourth season uh, because Black Mirror really explores all these things that I'm interested in. I mean, what defines the human being? What will artificial intelligence do to our lives in the future or even now? And all these things that I find interesting and, and sometimes scary. What has been your theme so far for 2018? I know we're just starting it. One thing I really want to do in 2018 is try to complete a novel that I've been writing, a novel for younger people. I'm not quite sure the age group yet, but maybe children around 10 to 15 or something. I've been writing that book for some time, but then I lost confidence in myself, so I stopped. But then I let my daughter read the part that I had written so far, and she really liked it, and she wants me to complete it because she wants to know the ending. So, mm. <laughs> so I'll be really happy if I can if I can just watch a little bit less Netflix and less HBO and try to focus more on the writing. Awesome. <laughs> Probably 20, 25 years ago, there was a Norwegian writer who wrote a big book called Sophie's World. It sold quite well internationally also, and it was made into a movie. But that was kind of a story of a young girl who explored philosophy. And, and through the book and her experiences, she met all these philosophers and learned about yeah, all the famous philosophers in, in the history. So I wanted to do something of the same, write a book that would be exciting for young people, kind of a, not mystery, but more of a, a girl who wants to solve crimes. But on that mission she learns and has to use quite a lot of skeptical tools and, and learn about science in the process. So I just want to write a book that's entertaining, but kind of sneak in some scientific concepts and skeptical concepts to try to teach young people to think critically and, and learn a bit about science and hopefully find it exciting. If you had one message for the world, what would it be? One message to the world, I think, would probably be what I was talking about earlier. If you feel something sounds really convincing or something sounds really meaningful to you, you should always take a step back, rethink it and try to look at the evidence and try to understand other people's perspectives. Because I think the biggest problem in the world now is that people, and that's been a big topic when I've written about these taboo subjects like pedophilia and things, it's People really like to put people in groups and define themselves out of the groups like, oh, that's a big problem with um, people uh, abusing young children. And we let's call these people pedophiles and we put them in this category or this group. And then we just have uh, hard punishments and things and then the problem is solved. But in reality, I mean, only a, a, a minor part of people abusing kids are actually pedophiles. Most of them are Usually regular people like you and me are having problems with addictions or having psychological problems or just being in a stressful period of their life or anything. That's one of the big things that most things that we hate other people for, we can't really define them into groups and say they are the problem. Usually we are part of the problem ourselves. And I think that's important because if you really want to solve problems like sexual abuse or even problems that come with immigration and radical Muslims and things, we really have to start looking at people as people and as part of community and not really that different from you and I to really solve the problems because we can't solve the problems by just isolating people and, and calling them names and trying to punish them or discriminate them. And that usually just makes the problems worse.
yeah, I just want people to be more empathetic, I think, to other people and try to understand their point of view and the life they have been living. And just when things just seem very scary or, or gives you a lot of meaning to hate someone or, or just say that something's stupid, then you should really rethink your position and just try to understand people more. Mm-hmm. Is there anything we haven't discussed that you would like to mention? If anyone is interested in anything I've written, the only thing (laughs) written in English is, uh, it was quite fun, Uh, the World Health Organization had a vaccine campaign in April in 2017, I think. And then they actually asked me to, because I've been holding some lectures about vaccines for the Nordic health authorities, Finland, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, and Iceland, talking about vaccines which I think is kind of fun. That's probably the thing that surprised me or been most fun is that I don't have any formal education in anything of this, but I've had the opportunity to talk to medical students and to health authorities many, many times and doctors and scientists. And they're interested in what I have to say because my blog is evidence-based. So that also says something about the democracy that science is, that anyone can actually have a voice if you just adhere to the scientific principles and yeah, methods. The World Health Organization heard about me having been to Sweden and talking about vaccines, and they wanted me to translate one of my most popular blog posts about vaccines into English. And they um, tweeted it out and published it on their European uh, website for everyone to read. And that was quite fun that even me, just some self-taught nerd could actually write something that the World Health Organization would think was good enough to read. So if you just Google my name and vaccines, uh, you'll probably find it on Google. Well, thank you so much for doing this, and I really enjoyed talking with you. Yeah, thank you the same. Bye. Bye. To learn more about Gunnar, check out his website at tjomlid.com. I've included this link and more in this episode's show notes. That concludes our 14th episode of Humans of Earth. Please visit kristenhovet.com for more information and consider becoming a patron of Humans of Earth through Patreon at patreon.com slash humans of earth. A big thank you to all of our patrons. This podcast would not exist without you. Thank you for joining me today and be sure to tune in next time.